Let's uh, turn to Romans chapter 16. We'll have to go to the next slide and the next slide after that. And we are going to see how Rav Shaul wraps up Ha'igeret Al-Haromim, the epistle, the letter to the Romans. Rav Shaul, as we have been seeing over the last year, as we have gone through this letter to the believers in Rome, is passionate about addressing a deep division within the community, a division that tends is tending to divide it, and not simply divide it, but cause destruction in that community. And there are outside factors that are playing into this. The Roman authorities sent the Jewish people out of Rome for a number of years. That turned the kehilah in Rome, and we prefer the term kehilah to the term church, which implies that it is something that has culturally left its Jewish roots. But the kehilah in Rome has been uh, turned over and upside down by the absence for a number of years of its Jewish members. And now they are back in Rome. They are attempting to unite as a body of Messiah, both Jewish and non-Jewish members, followers of Messiah. And Rav Shaul has been talking about their unity in him, how we have all come to Hashem, the Almighty God, the same way, on the basis of his grace and his mercy to us. None of us has reason to boast, but and none of us should think more highly of himself or herself than he or she ought to think. But together we have been made the people of God. And Rav Shaul has dealt with both the biblical reasons for this and the practical solutions to this, how we ought to live with one another, until finally he comes to the final chapter which wouldn't have been marked by a chapter number, of course, when he first wrote the letter. But he comes to this final chapter, and he begins to say goodbye. And as he does so, you get a real sense for the heart of the apostle, the shliach, Shaul, as he writes to them. And he is very concerned that their community, their kehilah, should be a place of safety. There should be a place of security, a place where the enemy cannot enter. So if we go to the next slide, we have a picture of uh, an English castle. And in a sense, we are reminded that a castle is a secure place. Now, the kehilah of God is not particularly a castle. It is the people of God. It is the temple of God. But it shares something in common with a castle in that it is to be a safe place. Now, if we go to the next slide, we see what was our castle, Deborah and I, in North London for the last three years that we lived there. Number 60, Grove Road, North Finchley, London. Now, many people have thought it's an American or Canadian saying, but... We go back into the 1500s, and uh, we have the phrase, your house is your castle, from Henry Estienne's uh, famous play, um, 
another, another playwright wrote, he, the householder, is the appointer of his own circumstance, and his house is his castle. The king of England cannot enter your modest home because it is your castle. It is a safe place. So on the next slide, we'll go back to a picture of a real castle. And there we are reminded it is a place where you are meant to be safe. And Rav Shaul has this concern for his people, his Kehila in Rome. He is very concerned that the members there should find it to be a safe place. And I think, as we look at our own Kehila, we can echo the same concern for ourselves. And it would be my hope and my prayer, and the prayer of many of us, that our Kehila could be a safe place, a place where the enemy cannot enter. The enemy has attempted to divide, to destroy the Kehila in Rome. And we would pray that just as Rav Shaul had this passionate concern for this Kehila in Rome that he had never been to, that our Kehila here too might be a place of safety, might be a place of security where the king, who is actually not us, because any castle we own belongs to the king of kings, where the king might reign supreme, and where we might find his grace extended not only from his hands, but extended from the hands of the members of the Kehila, one to another. Because here we are, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, as in the Kehila in Rome, And just as they were, we are imperfect people. We offend each other. Rav Shaul is very clear. They've been very busy offending one another in the Kehila in Rome. And they're clearly the redeemed. He's not questioning that. But there have been frictions. And in the midst of that, he is saying, let us make this a safe place and so rather than call our Kehila a, a um, castle, I'd rather call it, actually, a home. So that brings us to the next slide, where we talk first, in the, ca- in, in the case of Romans chapter 16, of the people of this home. From there we will go on to talk about the threat to this home, as Rav Shaul unveils some of the threats that come against the Kehila in Rome. And then we talk about, as Rav Shaul does at the end of chapter 16, about the king of this home that we have. And the Kehila, in a sense, is a home. The temple in the scriptures is, in a sense, the t- place where God resides. And the Kehilah, as the Brit Hadashah reveals to us, is a living building built up, a temple to the Lord, where we are each living stones. We are a people, but also a house, a home for God's people, as well as the bricks within that home. And so Rav Shaul begins in Romans chapter 1, 16, verses 1 to 16, to speak about the people 
of this home. And as he speaks, we're going to see a little bit about his heart, because he really does care about the Keilah in Rome. We see that he mentions 26 people. That's quite remarkable for someone who has never been there. It speaks a lot about how people moved around in the empire of Rome. We sometimes think, how did they get around? Did they ever go more than 20 miles from their homes? And obviously they did. Rav Shaul knows many of them in the Keilah in Rome. And we can assume that if he knows 26, it must be a much larger Keilah or networks of Kehilot, plural, than we might imagine. Far more than that 26. There are quite a few believers in Rome. And he begins to talk about them, and we see that as he talks about these 26, that his love becomes apparent. Let's read from verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Cancrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and a sister in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Messiah Yeshua, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the kehilot of the Gentiles, of the nations. Likewise, greet the kehilah that is in their house. Obviously, one of the kehilahs in Rome. Greet my beloved Epenetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Messiah. Greet Miriam, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, the Shlichim, who were in Messiah before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Messiah, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Messiah. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are uh, in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, the Kehilot of Messiah, greet you. First thing we notice, quite obvious, is that there are both Jews and Greeks here. And as we look, and we can go to one more click, um, we see his counting of, of the people here. We see that there are both Jews and Greeks, men and women, and slaves and free. In this counting, we could be reminded of the book of Galatians or his letter to the Kehila in, in Galatia, 
where he speaks about in Messiah, there are neither Jews nor Greeks, there are neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Messiah. Of course, those distinctions don't go away. We are who we are, no matter what. But in Messiah, we are united. We are united in one cause, just as a husband and wife are united together. They don't lose their distinctiveness. They are still individual persons, male and female, but they are one in their marriage. And Rav Shaul speaks about both Jews and Greeks. And one of the things that's quite obvious as he talks about both the Jews and the Greeks here, specifically noting some of those who are there as his countrymen, those who are Jewish like himself, and we can see that in their very names, we can see that Rav Shaul actually is very aware of his Jewish heritage. As if he could ever do away with it, it's the way he grew up, all of his mannerisms, his speech, everything about him. He is a Jewish man. He is a teacher raised according to the Torah. But he is someone who is still very aware of it. There are many scholars today who would try and tell you that Rav Shaul, when he became a believer in Messiah, no longer saw himself as a Jew. They will therefore quote 1 Corinthians 9, where Rav Shaul says, to the Jews I became a Jew, and to the Greeks I became a Greek. But in so doing, one of the real problems, and there are many problems with this approach, is is that you're making out Rav Shaul to be someone without any ethics, saying I'll be a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the Greeks, when that's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that he is giving away his identity. He is saying he will accommodate himself culturally to reach people in every group. He's not saying he will change his um, faithfulness to his Jewish heritage, and he's not saying he would deny his Jewishness among Gentile believers. The people who say this are making out Rav Shaul to be a liar in the book of Acts where he undergoes a rite of purification, taking the vow of the Nazir, the Nazarites, in order to demonstrate his faithfulness to God as a Jew, his faithfulness to Torah, and the fact that he has not led Jews away from their heritage and from the traditions and from the law. Rav Shaul very much makes it clear he is a Jew. But at the same time, as he notes his Jewishness by mentioning his specific relationship to those who are his countrymen, those who are also Jewish, he also shows his passionate love for those who are not Jewish in this list. He is someone who cares deeply for them. He is not someone who allows this to be a barrier, but because we are one in Messiah, his love is just as deep for every member that he knows in that Kehillah. He is someone who really reaches out. And so he does mention five Messianic Jews. We have Priscilla, or Prisca in the Greek, but we know it's uh, Priscilla. Um, He mentions Aquila, 
He mentions Timothy. And he mentions Miriam. He mentions further down Nereus. Nerea is a common Hebrew name. Um, and he mentions these people. And you know that they are his countrymen. But also he speaks very uh, glowingly of those such as Apenetus, the first fruits of Achaia to Messiah. He loves these people. He has a heart for them. He remembers them. And what's more, he stayed in touch with the news, knowing that they have moved. He knows that Apenetus has moved from Achaia to Rome. He's aware of the goings to and fro of people. He's a very connected person. Rav Shaul has the heart of a pastor who wants to know where his sheep are. Tremendous example of love and care. And so Rav Shaul notes the Jews and the Greeks. He also notes the men and the women. I think the men go without saying because they are the majority of the list. But in reality, the women go without saying too. Because the number of people in this list who are given special mention are women in in whom he is addressing. The very first person, Phoebe, our sister. It is just as in our Kehilah today. Many of the most significant people in our Kehilah are women. That is the way it is. And that is the way God intends it to be. And so he mentions Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Cancrea, or Sancrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of saints. She's been a helper or a patron, as some people suggest, of my many and of myself also. Someone he cares about deeply. He mentions Miriam. He mentions um, Junia as an apostle. Now, there are many apostles, just as Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned as apostles, those who are emissaries, those who are sent out. There are two classes of apostles, as we know. Some who saw the Lord and were commissioned by him directly and personally. Rav Shaul is the last one of those. And the 11 disciples are also apostles who we usually denote with a capital A. Those who were sent directly by Messiah Yeshua in person and who saw him in person. But there are many other shlichim, many other apostles in the Kehillah around the Roman Empire. People who go from Kehillah, from Kehillah, from town to town, from home to home. And some of them are prophets and some of them are shlichim. And they are going and they are bringing the good news. They are messengers. They are emissaries from the different kehilot who are explaining the good news of Messiah to those in the Roman Empire. So we have Priscilla and Aquila. We have others. And Junia is an apostle. We have Tryphosa, Julia, Nereus' sister. We have Rufus' mother. These are people in the list that show that as far as Rab Shaul was concerned, there was no distinction in Messiah. But there were also slaves and free. Along with the 
uh, note that Phoebe, our sister in verse 1, is someone who has helped many people in verse 2. We have to note that the word for help suggests that she was a patron. In other words, she was someone of means. And we know that in the Kehila of Rome, there were those who were high up in society. They weren't just the lower class, but they were people from all classes of society. There were both slaves and free. The name Julia in those days was a name that was very common among the servants in the imperial household. And so you have both the rulers and the ruled in the Kehila in Rome. This is Shaul's counting. There is no distinction. I think the lesson is very clear for us. Here we are. We are all different stripes. Some of us are from different places in society. Some of us have different amounts of means. Some of us, different occupations. Um, Some of us are men and women. Some of us are Jewish. And some of us are not Jewish, but Gentiles or ethnos from the nations, ethnics, as we probably could translate the word Uh, ethnos in the Greek, instead of Gentiles, possibly as ethnics. Here we are, a congregation, the way Messiah intended it to be. When we come and worship together, our distinctions do not matter, but what matters is that we are one in Messiah. The second thing we see of Shaul is Shaul's love. In, In the midst of his description of the people of this home. People risk their lives for him. We see this in verse um, verse 4. Priscilla and Aquila had risked their own necks for his life. Maybe Rav Shaul was thinking of people like them when he wrote in Romans chapter 5 and verse 7 that some would even dare to die for a good man. Maybe he was thinking of people who had risked their lives for him. And maybe he had seen it many times. There were people who loved him that much. In verse 5, he speaks about Epanetus, who I deeply love. Verse 5. Um, maybe I'm getting a little bit. Uh, maybe let's go to verse 8. I'm on sure ground there. Greet Amplius, my beloved, in the Lord. Verse 9. Greet Stachius, my beloved. Verse 12. Persis, whom I love. The beloved Persis, some translations will have it as. These are people that he loves. And I think we should be impressed how he really cares for these people and how it shows forth in this final salutation at the end of his letter. Also that he is taking the time and the effort to record each one. 
might remind us how we ought to love one another, how we ought to be encouraged to love one another. And so Rav Shaul, in a sense, is challenging to us. On the next line, Shaul's challenge to us, our challenge. In verse 16, he says, To greet one another with a holy kiss. The Kehilot of Messiah greet you. Kissing, of course, is, is a sign of affection and devotion and really commitment as well. We can see in the Gospels how at, on at least one occasion, Yeshua's feet were kissed because of the love and devotion and admiration of the woman who kissed his feet. He was loved. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. There are many different customs. I know in Italy, probably, we might guess it might have been the same back then. When you meet someone, you kiss on both cheeks. That is the affectionate, normal way in which to greet someone. But it is also something that is done from the heart. It's not meant to be cold. It's not necessary that uh, we take this as specifically a literal command. But what is very important is that we take it very specifically as that warmth and warm, loving, embracing greeting of one another. When we meet one another, do we make one another feel welcome? Do we make one another feel cared for and loved? I remember years ago now, in 1991, I started dating my wife, and I'd never experienced this before. Pick up the phone, call her. I lived in uh, Carisdale, and she lived in Everett, Washington, or uh, Lake Stevens. And I would pick up the phone and give her a call, and her voice at the other end was so warm and so friendly. It was really obvious she liked me, and she liked hearing from me. Um, that was just great. Uh, that was almost a reason to get married right there. Um, it was warm. It was from the heart. She still greets me that way. So um, it's, it's one of those blessings. When you love someone, it shows. And I think that's what Rav Shaul is saying. He's saying, let your love to each other show. When you greet each other, when you say hello, Probably could have said when you say goodbye, you care for one another. That reminds me how the British have such a hard time getting off the phones. Bye, 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 bye. Uh, something like that before the phone actually hangs up. But, but, but there's that sensitivity in the midst of what might look like an awkward custom as British end phone calls. Uh, there's that sensitivity for the other person at the other end of the line not to cause offense to care. Do we really care for one another? And so these first 16 verses in chapter 16 of Rome, of Romans, are so beautiful because they show us the love of Rav Shaul for the Kehilah in Rome. He is someone who cares. He is a shepherd. He is someone who loves the Kehilah that is there. But we continue in verse 17. Rav Shaul is far from naive. He knows the troubles 
that have come in the Kehilot that he writes to around the Roman Empire. He's seen enough of it. He's seen some pretty ghastly things. If you want to look at the different epistles and see the different issues he is addressing among the believers, you would be shocked. You probably wouldn't want to go to a Kehilah where some of these things were going on, as were going on in the Kehilot that he is writing to in the epistles uh, to Galatia or to the Ephesians or to the Corinthians, especially by the time you get to 2 Corinthians. There are serious problems. So Rav Shaul knows. In fact, he probably knows that some of the people that he loves deeply and has already mentioned may have issues with one another. And that maybe not all of them have their walk with the Lord completely settled. That doesn't affect his life. And it doesn't accept his love. But he does warn us to be on on guard. Verse 17. I urge you, brethren, brothers and sisters, as some people would translate it, but that's not a direct translation. The Greek is really brethren, uh, which includes both men and women. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. There are people who come into every group who cause division and offenses. Years ago, I remember uh, learning something about very large organized, organized churches. They are extremely picky about their leadership structure. And I've noticed they are extremely rigorous about who they allow to have any influence at all in the midst of their congregations. Sometimes the needs of an organization overcome the need to take a risk with various people and a need to extend trust and hope. And sometimes people who should otherwise have been able to serve in such situations are unable to because a large organization doesn't have room for so much diversity, whether it be in doctrine or, or style even, or objectives. But nevertheless, we are warned, and you can see the concern of these large organizations, and it is something that is happening in Rome as well. There are people who cause divisions. And we've all seen it, if not in our Kehilah here, we've seen it elsewhere. People will come and they will be divisive. The book of Proverbs tells us that a whisperer separates the closest of friends. It doesn't need to be someone coming in like a bull in a china shop, but it can be a whisperer, someone who is causing division, someone who is, is maybe putting the thin edge of a wedge into relationships, relationships that may not be able to stand it in time. There are also people who cause stumbling blocks. And Rav Shaul uses a term that's laden with symbology because we know the Lord used it, saying, Accursed is anyone who puts a stumbling block in, in the way of any of the least of these in my kingdom. 
The Lord warns us against those who would cause other believers to stumble. Divisions and offenses or stumbling blocks. Both of these things are to be noted. And those who cause such divisions and offenses are to be noted. It was a common problem among the early believers. In uh, one, one early writing that circulated widely among the early believers shortly after the book of Romans was written, believers were wa- warned, watch lest anyone deceive you from the way of the teaching of the apostles. Because anyone who does that teaches you away from God. They wrote to each other, if the one turning teaches to turn to another teaching leading to destruction, don't hear him. These are New Testament truths that have been absorbed and understood by the writer of these statements. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you learn. Didache 11 uh, is another quotation, and as you know, I've studied this book called the Didache. Every prophet teaching the truth, if he does not do what he teaches, is a false prophet. Look out for those who do not do according to what they teach. There are many false teachers in the world today. There are many false teachers among the kehilot of Messiah's people, the congregations of Messiah's people. We can recognize them, Rav Shaul says, not only by the fact that they cause divisions and that they cause offenses and therefore are to be avoided. I don't think Rav Shaul is saying avoid completely because elsewhere the Brit Chadashah tells us to reach out and seek to win back Uh, wayward brothers and sisters. But he says, this is how you can recognize such people. Verse 18, they do not serve our Lord, Messiah, Yeshua. There's something about them that says they're not really putting Messiah, Yeshua's interests first and foremost. In fact, there's something else at play. They are serving their own belly. Some of you may be aware of people who preach the good news of Messiah who own one million dollar jet airplanes. (laughs) One such person has the last name of Dollar, which I find is really very interesting. Um, We're very aware of people who have made their fortune preaching the good news of Messiah or something that looks like it. Positive thinking. um, Encouraging words that do not have the truth of the good news of Messiah that says we have a God who looks down, sees your shortcomings, your failures, your sins, and upon your confession, repentance from those is willing to extend grace to you on the basis of what Messiah, Yeshua, has done so that you might become one of his very own children. Some such speak preachers rarely, if ever, mention the word sin. But it has to be mentioned because you have to call a spade a spade. 
Just as we say you cannot deal with the problem of Islamic extremism if you are not able to, to label it, if you're not able to name it. How are you going to grapple with something you don't understand? We need to understand that we fall short of God. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. These are not the smooth words and flattering speech in verse 18 that we're used to from so many preachers on the television and elsewhere. But these are the words of God that we need to hear. And sometimes the words we need to hear are words that hurt and make us uncomfortable But unless we hear those words that hurt us and make us uncomfortable, we can't deal with the problem. And Rav Shaul says, you can see people who are divisive, who cause offenses, because these are their characteristics. You can discern them. They don't serve the Lord Messiah, Yeshua. They serve their own belly, amassing wealth to themselves when they can, reminded of one such person who even applied to work with chosen people ministries. Um, He too owned a jet plane. He didn't last long. There isn't much money if you're talking about reaching Jewish people for the gospel. Um, And uh, these people are characterized by smooth words, flattering speech, and lastly, deceive the hearts of the simple. Wow, that's quite a, quite a catalog of criteria by which to analyze someone and figure out where they're at. Some of us have the gift of discernment, because <laughs> smell it a mile away. Other people take a little bit of time and need to rely a little bit on the discernment of other brothers and sisters in Messiah. And our gifts of discernment are not given so that we might condemn, but they are given so that we might constructively protect the good, the good news and the people of Messiah. And so Rav Shaul tells us how to discern the troublemakers. He warns us. But Rav Shaul is constructive. He also tells us how to counter the troublemakers. And so here's, here are a few things that we can do, starting in verse 19. Obedience, your obedience, has become known to all. The Kehillah in Rome was known for being obedient. Yes, they had their troubles, but they were known for following Messiah, Yeshua. And Rav Shaul was glad on their behalf. But he wants them to be wise in what is good. We're probably reminded right away of Yeshua's command that we should be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We need to be wise. Remember, one of the characteristics of the troublemakers is that they deceive the simple. We need to become wise. Wisdom comes by getting to know the scriptures that Hashem, God, has given us. 
so that we might become wise with his wisdom, able to discern. Wisdom is extremely important for the people of God. Wise in what is good. We can be wise in the ways of the world, but that's not what really matters. What matters is that we are wise in what is good. And simple, at the end of verse 19, simple concerning evil. We don't need to know everything that is going on in the world already. In fact, I already know too much. And so do any of us who have televisions or get on the internet. We know a little bit too much about what goes on in our evil world. We really don't need to be wise about that. We need to be wise about what God offers us. We don't need to be intrigued about what is called the pleasures of sin in in terms of Moses who forsook the pleasures of sin so that he might serve God. But to be wise about the things of God, that is what really matters. It doesn't matter that we should look foolish once in a while when we don't know what a certain term might refer to or what a certain practice might be that people involve themselves in. What we want to know is what pleases God, what pleases our King. So we want to be simple concerning evil. And we are given hope that the God of peace will crush Hasatan, the adversary, under our feet shortly. We have the grace of our Adon, our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, who promises to be with us even until the end of the age. This is exciting stuff. It brings us to the third and final uh, part of this chapter, and we're going to skip ahead to chapter 16 and verse 25, where Rav Shaul talks about the one who is king in the house. In a sense, the term king is typically given to Messiah, Yeshua, the king of kings. But God is also a king, eternal, invisible, the king of kings, the Lord of hosts. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel, good news, and the preaching of Messiah Yeshua. He is the one that this epistle turns to at the very end. You remember how it begins at the very beginning. It is the gospel of God. It is the good news about Messiah, Yeshua. And now we are turning to him, the Father, once again. He is the one who is able to establish us according to this good news and the preaching of Messiah, Yeshua. He has revealed to us a mystery according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. And the term mystery occurs a number of times in the Brit Chadashah. Again and again we are told about this mystery or that mystery, but it is something that wasn't revealed, that wasn't clear, that now is clear because of Messiah. Now we understand. And the people of Rome, 
have only recently come to understand who Messiah Yeshua is. They have only recently come to realize what he is doing in the world. Yeshua has only given his life for us some 20 to 25 years before Rav Shaul writes this letter. In other words, less time than Kehilat Sion has been functioning since we were established in 1985, 1986. In less time than that, the good news has gone to the city of Rome. This mystery has been revealed. It's something that has been kept secret since the world began. Now we understand. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11, Yeshua answered his disciples, To you it has been given, known, given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The disciples understood this. They had, under, they had been given the revelation. Rav Shaul speaks of this revelation in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Messiah and stewards of the mysteries of God. We have great news. It is something that was hidden until Messiah gave himself for us, until he was revealed for us. It is now manifest, we read in verse 20, by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, just as we read in Elohim Asher, that we read every Shabbat, that God has made known to us through his prophets what was previously unknown, through his Son. Verse 26 here in Romans 16. According to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Messiah or Yeshua Messiah forever. Amen. We are here to exalt and honor the ever-living God. Messiah Yeshua has made a way for us to that ever-living God. And any glory we give to Messiah Yeshua goes to the Father so that he might be glorified and so that all nations and people of every tongue, tribe, and nation might bow before him. We live in an exciting time. We are the house of God. We are the people of God. And we are people just like the people that Rav Shaul was writing to almost 2,000 years ago. People who need to love one another. People who need to defend our faith and, and our home from those who would divide and who would subvert true teaching and subvert the good news of Messiah. And we are people who need to know the king of the home. We're coming to the fall now. We're at the end of the year, the end of the Jewish year, as, as Richard reminded us, we are now reading the Haftarot of Consolation as we go through this month 
the month of Av, and as we begin to look ahead to, to um, the high holy days, when we come before God, recognizing that we need Messiah Yeshua's forgiveness. At uh, this time, we, we start many programs. We're going to need help with the Shabbat school. We're always looking for people with the gift of uh, music who would be interested in talking to Steve or Joel, maybe about helping possibly in leading worship. We're looking for people who pray before our services and many other things that come up in the life of a Keilah. But in the midst of all that, all of our activities, what really matters is that we ought to love one another and that we do love one another. And take Rav Shaul's example, who cared so much for this Keilah in Rome, where he hadn't even met most of the people, that he would write them and that he would seek to visit them so that he might encourage them and build them up in the faith. My prayer is that we might be a loving congregation, that we might learn to love one another more and more as the days and years go on, and that we might shed our light far abroad, that people might know that this is a loving place, and that people might come because they want to meet the source of that love our God himself, who gave his son, his only begotten son, because he loved the world so much that whoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's conclude with a moment of prayer. Avinu Sheva Shamayim, we thank you for your son, Messiah Yeshua. We thank you for his love, which shed abroad in our hearts and which clearly shed abroad through Rav Shaul's heart right through the pages of this letter that he wrote to the Kehilas in Rome. And Father, we pray that your love might shed abroad in our hearts, that you might draw us closer to you and closer to one another as we see that day approaching and as we look forward to the glorious appearing of our Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.